Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we are going to follow the Dawah's success west, from Khurasan to its ultimate showdown against the Caliph's armies. We'll also find the time to engage in a critical reading of the accounts we're offered, and to reflect on the terminal failures of the Umayyad dynasty. Episode 40, The Abbasid Revolution. Revolution is a sexy, attention-grabbing concept, and so it's not surprising that this is one of the junctures of Arab history that has been given a good amount of attention. There is no shortage of commentary on the Abbasid revolution, but all this volume is not really based on a strong diversity of source material. It's not just a problem we find with the modern sources either. Even when reading the earliest accounts of al-Yaqubi, al-Tabari, and al-Mas'udi, an unfamiliar sense of uniformity can be detected. It can be subtle, but the difference comes out most clearly when you contrast the history from here on out with the salaciously controversial commentary we find on the Umayyads in the same sources. Now, none of the history that we've covered together is what I would call straightforward, but it's not all equally convoluted either. There isn't a one-size-fits-all approach that could address the various problems we come across as we go through the early sources. Bias needs to be contextualized, Pietistic sentiment recognized and discounted, intentionally inflammatory accounts identified and explained away, and so on. In certain eras, like times of fitna, for example, some of these problems become more common than others, and patterns can set distinct eras apart. Well, the revolution we're about to discuss sits at the beginning of such an age, and the new challenge we need to keep in mind, the one which exerts a muted uniformity across our early sources, while well, it stems from the existence of an official narrative. See, the earliest written sources were put to paper during the Abbasid dynasty, when the state propagated its own version of the past. Part of why we find so many scandalous accounts about the Umayyads in our sources is because the Abbasids had an interest in making their predecessors look bad. The Umayyads were a vanquished dynasty, being written about in the age of their successors. Anyway, scandal won't be the problem we face with the Abbasids themselves. It's the prevalence of an official narrative designed to make them look good and justify their choices. Today, we will go through the Abbasid account of their success, from how Abu Muslim took over Khurasan to their triumph over Marwan II. You'll see what I mean about a story that goes out of its way to make them look blameless, and I'll point out examples as we go along. The Abbasid who launched the Dawah is said to have been Adi, the son of Abdullah ibn al-Abbas. I'm not going to keep interrupting their narrative like this, but I want to point out that this is unlikely, as they don't really report any activity until after Adi's death. But whatever, let's say they got started early, like before Omar II's reign. The official Abbasid account of Adi is transparently apocryphal. Like one of the few details about him is that he was born the exact same day that his kin, the last of the rightly guided caliphs, Ali bin Abi Talib, was assassinated. How's that for subtly edging in on the Hashemite claim to authority? While his father, Abdullah, died in Ta'if towards the end of the second fitna, 
having been forced out of Mecca after he wouldn't pledge to Ibn Zubayr way back then, Ali and Qurayshis of his generation were asked to move to Syria by Walid bin Abdul Malik, purportedly so that the caliph could keep a better eye on his influential kin. Ali and the Abbasids settled as close as they could to the Arabian desert, in a town called Humayma, in the south of modern-day Jordan. The Abbasid in command when the Dawah really got going was Ali's son Muhammad, the most prominent of his more than 20 male children. This is also the Abbasid who inherited the Hashemite right to power from the son of Muhammad ibn Hanafiya, if you remember that unlikely origin story. If you have no idea what I just said, don't worry about it. It's just another Abbasid claim to legitimacy, this time from within Hashemite tradition. Since the Abbasids based the morality of the Dawah on the fact that they had the right to claim authority, they naturally obsessed about their legitimacy and explaining how they were in fact not engaged in treason. But let's skip all that and go straight to the Dawah. To hear the Abbasids describe it, the structure of the Dawah was a simple hierarchy. At the top were the Abbasids, they had 12 main deputies, and finally, 70 senior preachers supporting these 12 principles. These were probably the only men who knew that the Dawah was an Abbasid undertaking, and they were tasked with the vague project of preparing for its success. This initially took the form of simply getting a read for which parts of the Ummah presented the most fertile grounds for the cause to take root in, and it wasn't too long before it was clear that there was no better candidate than Khurasan. After this, we're told that the Abbasid Dawah had two secret headquarters. One was in Kufa, the other in Khurasan. There is contention on whether the Abbasids had tried to cultivate support in other areas, but their official narrative claims an early focus on the East, so we'll just take their word for it. The Dawah's agents went largely undetected during Omar and Yazid's reigns, and the first calamity which befell them didn't occur until Hisham's first governor of Khurasan, Asad, was in charge of the province. It was still pretty early days for the Dawah back then, about five years in or thereabout, and his mass execution of a bunch of their supporters was a real blow to their efforts. Hisham's other governors never caught anyone, but when Asad came back for his second assignment, he hunted them down again and inflicted some more pain. Shortly after this, in the year 744, the Abbasid Muhammad passed away, bequeathing leadership of the clan to his eldest son, Ibrahim. Ibrahim felt it time to accelerate the movement, and we first hear about Abu Muslim soon after he became the clan's patriarch. We're told Abu Muslim was a servant of some Arab who one day impressed this other guy high up in the Dawah, so that guy bought him and turned him on to its project. Abu Muslim duly impressed the Abbasids and was soon given a letter by Ibrahim assigning him in charge of operations in Khurasan. There's little else agreed upon about the origins of Abu Muslim, who remains a mysterious figure even within Abbasid tradition. Abu Muslim made good use of the pre-existing divisions within the Ummah in Khurasan, and he either played the sides off against one another, or at the very least waited for them to finish each other off before seizing his chance. The Abbasid revolution eventually became associated with the Qahtani side of the tribal feud for tangential and honestly inconsequential reasons. I mean, Asad inflicted a lot of pain on the Abbasids, and he was a Qahtani partisan, but that didn't stop the association from spreading, so go figure. It probably had more to do with the prevalence of Arabs from the Yemen in the east, and how unapologetically pro-Adnani Marwan II was, 
But again, it's a non-issue, so forget I brought it up. There is one wrinkle we find in these Abbasid accounts of the early phase in Khurasan, which I do want to call out and comment on. The story goes that in the mid-740s, the governor of Khurasan, Nasr ibn Sayyar, gave his freedman and lieutenant Yazid an army and tasked him with crushing Abu Muslim's forces. Despite being the larger of the two, Yazid's army was defeated and he was taken captive. Yazid was treated really, really well. He had a chat with Abu Muslim, who was new to the region, and promised that he would never take up arms against the Dawah again, and was therefore released in good faith. He returned to Nasr, and told him how the Dawah folks were the best people and exemplary Muslims. The governor was upset to see his most loyal supporter so utterly convinced of their cause, not only refusing to take up arms against them again, but also swearing that he would have joined them if he didn't feel he was still indebted to Nasr for his freedom. The account ends with a prediction that these new kids on the block were destined to succeed in their struggle against the Umayyads and renew Muslim power in the process. While we can't be sure that this story is fabricated, just the way it bathes the da'wah in all this positive light should be enough to make us skeptical. I like that it goes out of its way to make the point that even Nasr's closest loyalist was a fan of the da'wah deep in his heart of hearts. I feel like it supports my claim that Nasr was more than just an Umayyad official in the East, that he was someone the Dawah had a much harder time contending against. Although they eventually bested him on the battlefield, they couldn't really capitalize on their success until he passed away of natural causes in Rai in 748. The man leading the Dawah's armies at the time wasn't Abu Muslim, however. After his initial success in getting the ball rolling, one of the twelve principals, a man named Qahtaba, was put in charge of the military efforts in the province. There's a much-quoted letter from Ibrahim to Abu Muslim telling him to round up every Arabic-speaking male taller than five feet, kill anyone who seemed sketchy or resisted, and crowd the rest together into one massive army for Qahtaba to lead west. There is some disagreement on a few of the details here, especially the relationship between Abu Muslim and Qahtaba, and the timing of these events as well. There's no point in distracting ourselves, but we find some accounts defaming Abu Muslim as envious, power-hungry, and treacherous. Anyway, Qahtaba did a bang-up job leading the army west. Less than a year after Nasr's death, the Dawa cut through what used to be the Sassanid Empire like a hot knife. Its preachers openly took pledges of support, not to the Abbasids though, whose identities remained secret, but support for their project of ruling the nation according to the Prophet's precedent, and to return power to his clan. There is an account of a battle near Isfahan, where the Dawah's forces reportedly decimated an Umayyad army 50,000 men strong, but I'm not the only one who thinks there's plenty of exaggeration in the tale. They probably faced limited Umayyad resistance, as the Caliphate had been cut off from the east by the Karajite rebellion of the Haq in Iraq, whose followers were still being chased by the province's governor, despite the Haq's defeat a year earlier. Apart from this reported battle in Isfahan, Qahtaba didn't face much opposition until he reached the outskirts of Iraq in August 749, and found the governor waiting for him with a sizable army. You probably recall how the role of governor of Iraq was one of the key positions in the Umayyad Caliphate, and it traditionally fell to someone in whom the Caliph had full confidence. Marwan's man was the son of a storied Adnani's Dalwart who came up in our narrative before, albeit fleetingly. 
He was Yazid II's super pro-Adnani governor of Iraq, whom Hisham dismissed after coming to power to ease tribal tensions. Anyway, Ibn Hubayra's son Yazid had played his cards right during the Third Fitna, coming out against Yazid III and in support of Marwan II early. This put him on Marwan's good side, and he next helped the new caliph quell some of the rebellions against him, the latest of which was the Hawks in Iraq. Yazid defeated that Karajite in battle in 746, and he spent the next couple years shoring up his control of the province. Given this record of military success, there was good reason for Qahtaba to be worried when Yazid marched his army to meet him a few dozen miles outside Kufa. Unfortunately, we don't have any dependable estimates for the size of the two forces. The Abbasids probably had the smaller army because Qahtaba felt the need to resort to creative but risky tactics. He ordered a covert night raid against Yazid's forces early, and the fighting was fierce and confused. Qahtaba himself fell in the chaos, but the Umayyad army was so damaged by the assault that the battle ended with the Abbasid victory. Qahtaba's son Hassan was put in charge, and he watched Yazid withdraw his broken forces to the fortified Canton city of Wasit. Hassan ibn Qahtaba received a hero's welcome in Kufa. But his success was soured, first by his father's death, then the devastating revelation that it may have all been for naught. Somehow, the Abbasids had succeeded in keeping their involvement with the Dawah a secret for over two decades. But in September 749, days after this battle between Qahtaba and Yazid, their leader Ibrahim was arrested by Marwan's police and taken to prison in Harran. The rest of the clan had also disappeared. Nobody knew where they were, not even the Dawah's other principals. In what must have been a time of deep confusion, the official narrative finds an opportunity to further the Abbasid family's claim to the Hashemite mantle of authority by presenting us with the following unlikely tale. Unsure of how to proceed, someone high up in Dawa took the initiatives. Most accounts name him as Abu Salma al-Khallal, though sometimes this story is attributed to Abu Muslim or Hassan ibn Qahtaba. Anyway, whoever it was took a messenger he trusted and handed him three letters, each inviting a different Hashemite elder to become the new caliph. He ordered the messenger to go first to Ja'far al-Sadiq, the clan's leader, and to only go to the second guy if Ja'far refused, and so on. Well, after making the trip from Kufa to Mecca, the messenger finally found Ja'far, only for him to refuse to accept a letter addressed from a name he didn't recognize. After the messenger insisted on a reply, Ja'far snatched the unopened letter and burned it in his lantern, saying, there's your response. So the messenger went to the next guy, Abdullah. Abdullah read the letter, which told him how loyal armies from Khurasan had taken over the caliphate and were awaiting his white leadership, etc. He rushed over to Jafar to discuss this crazy letter and got a dressing down for even considering going on this reckless adventure. Jafar acerbically asked him how long he had kept hidden legions preparing matters for him in distant Khurasan. This apparently convinced Abdullah that it was unwise to try and follow the messenger back to Kufa. Something similar happened with the third guy, and ultimately the messenger turned back to Iraq empty-handed. So you see, the Abbasids tried to give power to the other Hashemite families, who were technically closer to the prophets, and therefore ahead of them in the tribal imagination. It's just that those guys refused to accept it. Sweet absolution. But with the Abbasids missing, the Dawah that had come so far in its fight against the Umayyads 
now lacked a Hashemite to give meaning to the whole project. Ibrahim had been captured by Marwan in September, and this unlikely account with the other Hashemites must have happened in October, because in November we get a new twist. The Abbasids come out of hiding in Kufa itself. Turns out they ran away as soon as Ibrahim was detained. They remained in hiding in Kufa after the Iraqi governor's defeat to make absolutely sure that they were safe before emerging. Some accounts claim they stayed in hiding to await the response from other Hashemite leaders, as if that story wasn't unlikely enough to begin with. With the re-emergence of the Abbasids, we are back in business. Since Ibrahim had died of the plague in Marwan's dungeons, their new leader was Ibrahim's brother, and he gave a fearsome sermon at Kufa's mosque which earned him the title as Safah, Arabic for bloodletter something he emphatically called himself at the end of his speech. So many people rushed to Kufa to pledge their support that he is said to have spent all day accepting pledges and leading prayers, with his family playing a big part in the proceedings. His younger brother was his right-hand man, and he could also rely on his many uncles and nephews, all of whom were loyal beyond doubt. Now that the whole project was out in the open, As-Saffah had Marwan's undivided attention and the ultimate battle between the Umayyads and the Abbasids was finally at hand. Marwan led a massive army through the Adnani heartlands of Jazeera to Musul. Some say it had over 120,000 men, with a strong regiment of heavy cavalry. Of course, it's the Abbasid accounts that exaggerate these numbers the most, and it's all the more suspicious that they can count that many enemy troops, but have no estimates of their own. The Abbasid army's leadership is also contested, some sources claim Abu Muslim was there, others that it was just Hassan ibn Qahtaba, but most agree that the ultimate commander of the Abbasid forces was one of As-Saffah's uncles, A. Abdullah ibn Ali. Another thing that isn't exactly clear is where the battle took place. It's just called the Battle at Zab, which is a river in northern Iraq. Al-Yaqubi has this diverting passage explaining why the Umayyads picked that river. He writes that a soothsayer told Marwan that the Abbasids' banners will never be able to cross to the western shores of the Zab. Yaqubi's faith in the power of the stars is clear from his history, and he insists that the astrologer was not mistaken, but that there were two Zabs and Marwan had misunderstood. The real Zab was somewhere in Andalusia, where the Abbasid Caliphate did indeed fail to establish itself many, many years down the line. The Umayyads first garrisoned in a city a short distance west from the fateful river. Then after some brief skirmishes, they came out in full force to face their enemies, and they camped on the Zab's western bank. The main factor cited for the unlikely victory of the Abbasids is their unity, or perhaps it is more accurate to blame the divisions within the Umayyad camp. We're told that whenever Marwan would order one tribe to go on the offensive, they'd respond by asking him why he didn't ask their rivals instead. After years of tamping out rebellions with his Adnani armies, all the troops under his charge were thoroughly tribal, loyal only to their elders. By contrast, the Abbasids withstood a cavalry charge by maintaining a spear wall shoulder to shoulder, holding on steadily in the face of Marwan's most powerful military asset. They then proceeded to cut down the bridge Umayyad forces had to cross to engage them. Thousands drowned in the January waters of the Zab, and the remnants of the Umayyad army ran away, as did Marwan II. 
With this surprise triumph early in the year 750, the Abbasids established their dynasty, becoming the first clan to wrest power from Umayyad hands since Muawiyah's victory in 660 AD. The caliph's brothers, uncles, nephews, principals, and preachers were assigned different provinces across the Ummah, and the first thing they did was hunt down any and all Umayyads they could get their hands on. It was a memorable bloodbath, not because of its mass violence, but because its victims were all the noble Umayyads. It entered the Arab imagination and spurred myths, like the one where Azafah got his title, Bloodletter, for rounding up all the Umayyads, inviting them to dinner, clubbing them to death, and having them served as a first meal. He didn't eat them or anything. I think it's just an expression of his appetite for vengeance or something. Whatever it was, the Umayyads were wiped out, and the final Umayyad caliph, Marwan, was captured somewhere in the Nile Delta in July of that year. He was immediately executed, and his head was sent to Al-Zaffah in Kufa. The Umayyad Caliphate lasted for almost nine decades, or a thousand months, as the Arabs like to say. Commentators usually split the clan's reign into two dynasties, the Sufyanids and the Marwanids. To the first belonged the descendants of Abu Sufyan, the Qurayshi leader who opposed the Prophet, his son Muawiyah, grandson Yazid, and technically Muawiyah II, was only caliph for a few months. The Marwanids are the children of Marwan, cousin and confidant to the third rightly guided caliph Uthman, and father of Abdul Malik, who won the second fitna and re-established Umayyad power. Since Abdul Malik did so by following Muawiyah's playbook, there are many similarities between the two dynasties, like how they both acknowledged the tribal dimensions of Arab society and sought to somehow co-opt them. Abdul Malik took the state further by establishing systems and bureaucracies meant to outlive him, and his triumph in the second fitna meant he could pass the caliphate to his son far more securely than Muawiyah had. Anyway, the general view is that all Abdul Malik's sons messed it up to various degrees until Hisham came along. Omar II always gets a special shout-out, but while his piety is roundly praised, many sources end up blaming his policies for bankrupting the Ummah, and so overall he falls short of greatness. These middling caliphs, to be polite about it, they all undermined Arab unity, either through profligate spending and misadministration, or by allowing the tribal feud to burn, the worst of them even actively fueling it by taking sides. Hisham, the last of the great Umayyad caliphs, really came to power just in time to save his clan from the consequences of his brother's reigns. He shored up defenses, fixed problems, and balanced tribal interests for decades. Unfortunately for his entire clan, however, none of its younger generation were paying attention. Al-Walid ibn al-Yazid was a terrible caliph, and his cousin al-Yazid ibn al-Walid deposed him in a violent coup, setting an even more terrible precedent, and placing second in the year of the four caliphs. The last and best of these four, Marwan the Ass, triumphed over his younger kin, but he had to spend his entire reign camping out the many rebellions against his rule. He was sort of perfect for the job, and the career soldier won victory after victory, but since he was using one part of his ummah to subdue another, by the time the Abbasid menace rolled around, he had too few supporters left to stand up to them. While some blame Marwan for not paying more attention to the East earlier, I can't bring myself to agree with them. The vast majority of the battles he fought were out of necessity. By the time he was done with Syria, Iraq had already been conquered by Karajites, 
and he was cut off entirely from Khorasan. The kind of attention that province required was simply impossible for him to provide. If the Abbasids were unstoppable by that late stage of their da'wah, they certainly were not mere years earlier. When Hisham's governor of Khurasan, Asad al-Qasri, caught and executed a bunch of their supporters in the late 20s, they really felt the pain. We must conclude that their power truly ballooned just before and throughout the third fitna. As soon as the caliphs took their eyes off Khurasan, which is to say with Hisham's death, the fragmented province fell apart. This is something alluded to in a roundabout way in one of the accounts we hear about when Hisham chose Nasr to be his governor in the east. When the caliph was warned that Nasr had no family, he replied saying that he would be Nasr's family and Nasr would never need anyone else. This has been understood as an acknowledgement that Nasr could only be expected to effectively rule the province with Umayyad support. But Hisham's successor Walid had little appreciation for any of this. In fact, he barely had the patience for or inclination towards governing altogether. Ever since Hisham's death in 743, Nasr was on his own Khurasan, and while he did an admirable job holding on to power, ultimately Abu Muslim and his da'wah came out on top. Before we end for the day, I wanted to present a short passage I found in Al-Mas'udi's history. Like most of his stuff, it's probably hearsay, but he wouldn't have related if it wasn't pithy. So here goes. This one's a little on the nose, but basically it's a reply the elders of the Umayyad clan gave when they were asked to explain why their era had come to an end. Quote, We busied ourselves with our pleasures, and they kept us from our duties. We wronged our flock until they despaired of ever being treated fairly, and they wished to be rid of us. We were so cruel with taxation that it destroyed many villages and emptied our treasuries. We trusted others to administer our lands, and they put their own interests ahead of ours and hid things from us. We grew tardy when paying our troops, so they grew disobedient, and finally they joined our enemies against us." Mas'udi's account is pretty close to how the decline of the Umayyads is preserved in Arab memory despite its flagrant lack of any of the specifics I have labored to highlight as we explored the dynasty's fall. Instead of saying a word about the clan's infighting, the tribal feud, and how volatile the situation was in Khurasan, he has his nameless Umayyads blaming themselves for being greedy and irresponsible. This isn't because al-Mas'udi was a bad or lazy historian, far from it, but it's because he was addressing contemporaries who had grown up steeped in the oral histories passed on for generations. His accounts are diverting because they riff off the prevailing narrative, which from here on out is the Abbasid state's account of the past, what I've been referring to as the Abbasid narrative. Focusing on nuance and the details of how the great house that preceded them was brought down wasn't something the Abbasids were interested in. Instead, it was best to accentuate all the angles which made the Umayyads look like an out-of-touch elite, because that made the Abbasid revolution seem more sympathetic like it was a grassroots rebellion by the pious against the godless aristocracy. After over a dozen caliphs, two dozen episodes, and almost 90 years of history, we are ready to turn the page on the Umayyads. They did a good job channeling their people's tribal energies and inclinations towards building an Arab state until they didn't. 
Sure, they placed themselves squarely at the top of the social hierarchy they had constructed, but that wasn't the deal-breaker. Things didn't fall apart until a string of bad caliphs inflamed the tribal passions that the Umayyads were meant to control beyond the point of no return. To discover whether their successors, the Abbasids, fared any better, join me next time so that we can begin their journey together, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. (music) 